Good morning, church. I'm sitting here thinking, what would a church look like without young people? I, I don't know. It's, it would be very, very, very somber, that's for sure. It's great, great to see that. Thank you so much for sharing. Uh, we're looking forward to two songs at least next time. And uh, it's good. I want to get into the Bible right away, if that's okay. We are in the... Uh, fourth commitment of a series that we are doing right now called Growing Younger. And uh, we are actually uh, today talking about empathizing with today's young people. And what does that mean? What does that look like? What does it mean to empathize with young people? We're going to look a little bit about that and study a little bit about what that would look like. But I want to go to a very familiar story in the Bible. And as I often say, do not let the familiarity of the story rob you of its blessing. This is a story that, depending on what perspective you're looking at it from, it's got some really wonderful gems that can really be a blessing to you. So uh, let's look at this. Uh, it'll be up here. It's found in uh, Luke, uh, and, and it's uh, the story of the prodigal son, Luke chapter 15. And uh, I'm kind of picking up in the middle of the story because the first part of the story is the part that everybody knows really well. It's the part where the young man says, hey, I want half of the share of my money, and father gives it to him, unbeknownst to us. We can't believe it that this guy would have this kind of amazing uh, love for his son. That he says, yes, go ahead, and he gives him the money. They go. He goes, and you know, he squanders the money. He realizes that this is not a good thing. In fact, he is eating with the pigs, and he's not happy. He makes a big speech and makes his way home and decides, you know what, I'm going to go home and I'm going to see if I can beg to be a servant. And this is where we pick up the story. It says, so he got up and returned to his father. Now, I've put some things in green because I want you to see them as they are reflecting what empathy looks like. Are you following me? It says, the father looked off in the distance and saw the young man returning. He felt compassion for his son and ran out to him. And it says, and enfolded him in an embrace and kissed him. The son said, Father, I have done a terrible wrong in God's sight and in your sight too. I have forfeited any right to be treated as your son. And as he's continuing this, the father interrupts him, turns to his servants and said, Quick! Empathy. Quick, bring the best robe we have and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet. Go get the fattest calf and butcher it. Let's have a feast and celebrate because my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and has been found. And so they had this huge party. Now, Jesus, I love, I love Jesus because he's just a master at storytelling. And he continues the story. You think, wow, that's great. They live happily ever after. No, no, the story continues. And it goes like this. Now the man's older son 
was still out in the fields working. He's a faithful son with great work ethics. He came home at the end of the day and heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what was going on. And the servant said, your brother has returned and your father has butchered the fattest calf to celebrate his safe return. The older brother got really happy. The older brother got really angry and refused to come inside. So his father came out and pleaded with him to join the celebration. His father comes out and pleads with him to join the celebration and pleads with him. But he argued back, listen, all these years, I've worked hard for you. I've never disobeyed one of your orders. But how many times have you even given me a little goat to roast for a party with my friends? Not once. This is not fair. So this son of yours comes. This wasteful delinquent who has spent your hard-earned wealth on loose women. And what do you do? You butcher the fattest calf from the herd? And the father replied, my son, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. Isn't it right to join in the celebration and be happy? This is your brother we're talking about. He was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found again. He was lost and is found again. I believe that the church right now is having a crisis of empathy. We are like the older brother, and we are struggling to embrace and welcome and include and understand the younger generation. And we, we, do, we, we do okay in pretending. We do okay with what we've known, but... But it's really not enough. We know that because every Christian denomination, every Christian church is losing young people by droves. Something is not right. And one of the things that we have been looking at is what are some of the things that churches that are growing young are doing right? And one of the things that they're doing right, the churches that are growing young, they have this amazing way of empathizing with young people. Now let me explain to you what empathy means. Uh, here's probably my favorite uh, definition of empathy is actually from a children's book. Just thought this was the best one. And it goes like this. Empathy is the ability to understand how someone else is feeling or to understand the situation that they are in. It's the ability to understand the feeling and the situation. It is the ability to put yourself in someone else's shoes and to understand the way a situation might make them feel. Does that make sense? I love uh, probably one of my uh, most contemporary favorite authors right now is a lady by the name of Brene Brown. 
And Brene Brown's definition is fantastic. It goes like this. Empathy is communicating that incredible healing message of what? You're not alone. Uh, I'm going to show you a little video here. It's actually a little video that Brene Brown put together. It's about two minutes. But it's worth watching because she kind of gives us the differentiation between empathy and sympathy and what they mean. So I'm going to step away for a second as we put this video on. I think most of us are pretty good at sympathy. I think many of us struggle with empathy because we, all, we are all in our own little words, worlds and we, we have our own perspective, we have our own hurts, our own baggage, our own challenges, and the last thing we need is to be able to enter into somebody else's challenge. But the truth is, number one, unless we enter into a young person's world, unless we're willing to enter into their challenge, we're never going to truly understand them. And the second truth is, when we do that, there is this incredible healing power, not only for them, but for us also. There is something wonderful about entering into empathy with a young person, with anybody for that matter. Now, Jesus once said these words, and I believe that this was a rhetorical statement that Jesus was making, but I think it's important to notice what he said here, he's trying to make a, a statement about the love of God. He's trying to say something about God's love, right? And this is what he says. He says, what man is there among you? Like, really? Who, if his son asks for bread, will give him stones? Come on. Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then being evil... Even you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? Right? He's trying to make a point. He's living in a world where nobody would ever conceive of this. And today, however, 2,000 years later, I believe we live in a world where parents give snakes and stones. We live in a world today where parents are constantly... And not just parents, by the way, teachers, church leaders are constantly giving young people snakes and stones. Let me see if I can explain this to you. Let me give you some national statistics here. Number one, an estimated 916,700 children were determined to be victims of child abuse or neglect in 2018. In 2018, an estimated... Uh, 1,830 children died of child abuse and neglect. An average of five children per day. This is in the United States. Approximately 83% of perpetrators were who? The parents. Think about that. Do you think we live in a world that parents give snakes and stones? So uh, I call this the subtle neglect syndrome. Every time we do not model the virtues necessary to assure a stable life, we are giving snakes and stones. 
Every time we deny our children and teens a safe emotional environment where they can make mistakes and still feel accepted, we are giving them snakes and stones. Every time we refuse our children and teens the lessons of limits, boundaries, consequences, responsibilities, and accountability, we are guaranteeing them a lifetime of frustration and failure, and we are giving them snakes and stones. Every time we don't encourage our children to discover and develop their own God-given special abilities, we are giving them snakes and stones. Every time we invade our teens' dreams with ours and don't help them discover their uniqueness, we create in them an inability to act and think for themselves. We destroy their true identity and we are giving them snakes and stones. I should have warned you, this chapter is a difficult chapter. Every time we show special favor to one child over another, we don't celebrate each child's differences and individuality and individual accomplishments. We cause sibling rivalry and feelings of insignificance, and we give them snakes and stones. And every time we don't prize and cherish our children enough to lead them to the forgiving, loving Savior, the irresistible Jesus, we are giving them snakes and stones. The prodigal son story is an amazing contrast between the father and the older brother, between empathy and callousness, not even sympathy from the older brother. The, the, the father looks for him in the distance. He runs to him. He embraces him. He kisses him. He clothes him. He reestablishes him as his son. And he throws a huge party, so huge that you can hear from outside. And that's the father. The older brother is suspicious. Have you noticed this? Hey, what's going on over here? He has got this spirit of resentment. Is judgmental. He cries, unfair, unfair, unfair. And he re refuses to enter into the joy. You know what I love about that parable, by the way? Is that Jesus never ends the parable. Jesus just kind of tells you what happens, but he doesn't say, you know, what does the son do? Once the father pleads with him, does the older brother say, you know, I, I was wrong? Does he go inside the party and joins and starts dancing with his brother and celebrates it? Or does he just say, you know what, forget all this and walks out? I think Jesus does this on purpose because I think he's trying to say to us as a church, which decision are we going to make? Are we going to join our young people with empathy? Are we going to help them to discover what it is to come back to God? Are we going to embrace them? I'm going to throw a party for them. Suicide is the third leading cause of death among teens. Wow. 
millennials and Gen Zs, while being labeled lazy and spoiled these days by those who would dismiss the facts that they are experiencing, sociologist Ann Peterson would term what they're going through as errand paralysis. She says that they are becoming the burnout generation. And if you are part of this generation, I think you know what I'm talking about. Anybody from the age of, of 10 to the age of 35, 36, 37, that's, that's Gen Zs and, 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 and millennials. You guys are in there, and, and maybe when you're 10, you don't realize it yet. But all the schoolwork and all the work and all of the desire for you to achieve and all the things that we try to pass on to you for you to have good work ethics and all these things, they're stressing you out. More so than any generation before. Because there is this exponential thing that is happening. We were treated that way and so we've got to do better than our parents did. And my daughter's got to do better than we did. Listen to what she writes. This is from, from uh, a book that she's written called uh, Generation, um, the, uh, uh, the Burnout Generation, it's called. And she, goes, she says this, is, why can't I get this mundane stuff done? Because I am burnt out. Why am I burnt out? Because I've internalized the idea that I should be working all the time. Why have I internalized this idea? Because everything and everyone in my life has reinforced it, explicitly and implicitly. Since I was young, life has always been hard, but, but many millennials are unequipped to deal with that particular way in which it's be it becomes hard for us. Generation Z is overwhelmed and overexposed. They are growing up in a world that is more isolated, more polarized, and more dehumanized. By screens and content with which they've been exposed, sadly, while we see more need around us than ever, we've become more jaded by, all, by, by it all at times. And young people say, we feel sad and want to avoid sadness, exposure, without application that can do, can do that to anyone. In other words, if there is not a place where you can somehow be part of an answer, be part of the solution, you just get jaded and you're like, you know, is this, this is why people come to church and they're like, is this it? Really? We just come here once a week and we sit down and we sing a couple of songs and hear a sermon and go home? Oh, wonderful. How long do you think it's going to take before people get jaded? Let me tell you right now, I'm amazed how, many, uh, how much our generation has, has, has really been able to, to survive this long. But Gen Z and millennials, they're not going to survive it. They want something real. And they want us to be able to enter into their world so that we can help them understand these things. It's time to take the blinders off. The issues that plague today's young people are intense, let me tell you. And we could easily just say, well, at least it's not this bad. Or we can compare it to when we were younger. You know, all of you have heard the story of the father or the grandfather who had to walk in the snow to school, you know. And we inherit this and we, we pass it on. 
with no shoes, 10 miles away. I'm like, Dad, there's no snow in Naples. Come on. <laughs> Young people today are experiencing something that we never experienced before. It's called educational inflation. And when you needed an undergraduate degree, now you need a master's. And when you needed a master's, now you need a doctorate. And still, there are young people today that have these amazing degrees and they can't find a job. They're overqualified. Young people today are experiencing, they're addicted to social media because they can't find authentic community anywhere else, as if social media was authentic community. But at least they can friend and unfriend and, you know, it's easy. It's just the click of a button. It's hard to do that when a loving church treats you with empathy. They're experiencing digital dependency. They have this thing called information overload. They're exposed to sexuality in alarming rates. And it's amazing how many people I work with that are struggling with, with, with sexual issues and, 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 and sexual confusion. It, 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 I'm telling you, it's going to happen, and it's going to get worse and worse and worse. And if we are not equipped to love them and embrace them and figure out a way to bring them to Jesus, we're going to lose our young people. They need to know that Jesus loves them just the way they are, and God will take care of that, the rest. Just like he loved me just the way I was. And little by little, God changed me. In their deepest quest to belong, young people are experimenting these days. What initially seemed like a, a speedy path to connection degrades into a, a dead end of pain and regret. And we are told that there are three things, three questions that they are constantly asking themselves. And Interesting enough, these are the same three questions all young people have asked throughout all generations. They're still asking the same three questions. It's just a different context now. Are you ready to hear these questions? See if you can identify. First question is, who am I? Who am I, really? This is a question about identity. And if we don't help them understand what their identity is, somebody else will give them an identity. How are we doing out here? The next question is, where do I fit in? This is a question of belonging. If we do not give them an opportunity and a place to belong, they will find somewhere else to belong. And the next question, the final question is, what difference do I make, really? Why am I here? There's millions and billions of people on this planet. Why am I even here? What if we don't give them a purpose, somebody else will. So Jesus said, you are the light of the world. That's your identity. We got to stop treating young people as if they were the darkness of the world. We got to stop treating young people as if they were the, the curse of the world. The ones that are going to ruin. No, we've already ruined the world for them. They are the light of the world. Do you believe that? 
That's what Jesus said. That's our identity. You're the light of the world. He says a city located on a hill cannot be hidden. People do not light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In this same way, let your light shine before people. That's your purpose. Shine. Shine. This is a world eclipsed by darkness. This is a world eclipsed by, by, by sadness and loneliness. This is a world that is, that is just dying out there. And, and if ever there, in, there needs a place for authentic light and shining, this is it. And we are it. The church is still the hope of the world. So that they can see your good deeds and give honor to who? Your father. Yes, you belong. You are a child of God. You are a son and daughter of God. Jesus is your older brother. And he can't wait to embrace you. So I have a couple of questions I want to ask you to take away. And then I'm going to read a little a little letter that I, we just, Nancy and I just received uh, in the last couple of weeks, little excerpts from it so that you can understand what's going on here. And we're going to close. But here's some questions that I want you to go away with because we're going to be revisiting this as our church commits to growing young, okay? So here's the first, here's the two questions. What gets in the way of our church empathizing with children, teenagers, and young adults? Ask yourself this question. What gets in my way? What is it that causes me not to truly empathize with children, with young people, with young adults? What is it? Am I afraid? Is it that I just don't understand? Maybe I should just connect with them. Maybe I should figure out a way to understand. What is it? Why is it that we are not connecting with them? And then what shifts might we need to make in order to be a more hospitable place for young people's journey towards identity, belonging, and purpose. What can we do? I had Keeney teach my class last week because uh, I was in Portland working with a bunch of other young people there. And I got to tell you, uh, she, she did this amazing job. She asked the young people, said, you know, if this church did not exist, what, what would you look for in another church? And, and, and let me tell you what came up. They wanted biblical preaching. Hello. They wanted a warm community. They wanted good music that they could sing to. And they wanted to be involved. That's not us telling you that. That's them telling you this. And so, young people, I want to tell you today, I don't care how old you are, you are not alone. We love you. And we, we, we make mistakes. We're going to make lots of mistakes. I'm just going to tell you that right now. Our motto here is fail often, succeed sooner. So we're going to make lots of mistakes. But I tell you what, you're going to make some mistakes, and we're okay with that. We're going to embrace you. We're going to, we're going to make you part of who we are. Through the years, Nancy and I had the privilege of uh, working 
with young people. I think we do it just to keep us young. And there's this uh, young girl, I'm just going to call her Mandy, who is uh, in her 30s now, early 30s, uh, millennial. We knew her when she was a teenager out of school. And she's been writing to us. And I asked permission if I could read some of the excerpts from uh, these uh, messages that we're getting back and forth. When I say writing, you know, this is not pen and paper anymore, right? You know that, right? It's Facebook messaging. And she's writing to us, and I said, I, asked, I said, listen, if I protect your identity, and if I'm really discreet, can I do this? And she said, sure. So here we go. Ready? This came a few weeks ago, probably about, about a month ago. Hi, strangers. How are you? She, she writes to us like once a year. You know, we get these. How are you? I'm good, but I've been having a hard time lately. And I felt like I should reach out to you two, my favorite teachers. She needs something, right? (laughs) I don't know if I told you or not at some point, but I have PTSD from a few things. Some later after high school, but mostly from the time I spent being counseled by, then named the person. We know this person, and we had no idea. I was so in denial in high school about it, and I think I couldn't afford to see it and tell people about it, but he sexually abused me, and it's a big part of why I continue using and relapsing for years and years and years. The separation between my emotions and myself and the feeling of horror and terror that would come over me. I was scared of him, too, and I also had mixed feelings about him. He royalty, royally messed me up, messed up my mind, and like I tried to believe everything he told me, and I was too hurt to acknowledge things, and I sometimes didn't care in a way because I thought he cared even though he was hurting me. I had these demons settled for years for a few years, and lately they've come back. I wish I could have told you then. I wish I was too afraid to even see it myself. And when I did see it, I stuffed it down and was afraid of it and what it meant about me and what I thought was my fault and my part in it. I also felt like I needed to protect him. And there's just so much more, but I hope he hasn't hurt anyone else since. It's amazing how someone can mess you up so badly that it stays with you for decades. So I don't know why I'm really sharing this or what, but I was trying to think of people that actually cared and didn't treat me badly and people who had empathy about towards me. Even if I'm messing up, and I thought of you guys. <laughs> I try to remember that although there were people bringing harm to me and there were also those trying to help me. I'm not really religious anymore, but I do thank God I went to a Christian school 
and not public school because I'm not, I, I am confident that I would not be alive today with the ease it would be to get drugs, the lack of anyone who cared around me. At least you guys cared. Thanks for all you've done for me and for others. Lately, with, this, with these triggers coming up, I've kind of been messing up again, and I know I have to stop and get it together, so I thought I'd, I'd do what I'd never do and reach out to most everyone. I'm confident and great at my job. She's a counselor at a public elementary school. And people think I'm smart, but there are two of me, and it's hard to keep track of who I am. So we wrote back to her and thanked her for trusting us, told her we were praying for her, and, and then once in a while she would pop up with another one. My daughter was my motivation to get my eating disorder into remission too. I was underweight when I got pregnant with her, and then after I was 100 pounds when she was three and four, and I didn't want her to inherit it. I don't know why I'm so messed up, but I have to fix it. And so I wrote to her. I said, Mandy, I don't know where you are with God these days, but it doesn't matter. He will help you with this if you let him. And she wrote back, I just can't believe in him much. I mean, it would be nice. Listen to this, because this is the cry of this generation. It would be nice if there was a heaven or some higher power and a better afterlife, but I don't believe that right now. And I wrote, it doesn't matter. He believes in you. That is the words of compassion that we must share with our young people. It doesn't matter because God believes in you. The God you don't believe in doesn't exist. There is a God out there, though, that is powerful and loving, and he, he, he's doing everything he can to reach out to you. And it's okay if you don't believe in him. He believes in you. And one day, if you give him a chance, so she's checking into a place in a couple of weeks called a place of hope. It's a recovery place in Seattle. She's coming from the East Coast to Seattle to go there. And she said, would you come and visit? So we're going to visit. We're probably going to drive three and a half hours to spend an hour with her. But that's what empathy does. So I'll finish with this song that was written some years ago by a group called Lost and Found. I'm not singing it, so don't, don't, don't be afraid. I'm just going to read you the words. It's called Baby. Her shaved head and her pierced nose. Her big Rottweilers and her tie-dye clothes. The Dr. Martins with her biker tights. Her long black leggings on a hot summer night. And nobody calls her Baby. Nobody says, I love you so. Nobody calls her Baby. I guess she'll never know his working boots and flannel shirts, his sympathies buried as deep as his hurts, long lonely walks with nowhere to go, his only appointment with the TV show, 
And nobody calls him baby. Nobody says, I love you so. Nobody calls him baby. I guess he'll never know. 80 pounds, and she's hardly whole. Losing her body to gain some control. Hours alone in some tanning salon, trying a smaller and smaller size on, and nobody calls her baby. Nobody says, I love you so. Nobody calls her baby. I guess she'll never know. His pinstriped suit and wing-tipped shoes, his laptop computer and his Wall Street news. He makes his plan and he keeps his pace. He hides his pain behind a poker face. And nobody calls him baby. Nobody says, I love you so. Nobody calls him baby. I guess he'll never know, but somebody loves those babies. Somebody loves what we can't see. And if somebody told them, maybe those babies would be free. Father in heaven, Lord, we are all broken in some way. We've all experienced pain and Sometimes, Lord, we just want to run away from it, but if we can sometimes tap into that to be able to empathize with someone else, please, Lord, give us that privilege. Help us to be attentive to the Spirit's voice. Help us, Lord, to, to be your arms, your voice. Teach us, Father. Thank you for the beautiful music we heard today, the children's choir, worship team. Thank you for this loving church. And for those who visited us, Lord, we pray a blessing on each and every one. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.